Hi, I'm Lauren. I'm Tia. And I'm Tom. Welcome to Journey to Transformation. So we're joined by Tamiwa Owalade, a writer, critic, and a contributing editor to Unheard, with columns and reviews also for the Sunday Times and the Financial Times. Tamiwa graduated from the Queen Mary's University of London in English and pursued a career as a writer focusing on themes of culture and race in Britain. Tamiwa has written recent articles titled In Defense of Wokeness, The Problem with White Saviors, Anti-Racism Won't Save You, and just this month, an article for the Sunday Times titled While Firebands Rage, Most of Us Talk About Race Quite Calmly. It is through the discovery of such articles on Twitter and the themes of race and white saviorism that we reached out to Tamiwa to understand his positioning and critique. The nonprofit sector is leaning heavily into anti-racism and decolonization, and we'd like to understand together, critically, if not anti-racism, then what? Welcome to me, to the van. Just to say that was probably the most official reading in we've ever had. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I feel privileged. Oh, very well structured. Good job. Thank Good you. job. There you go. <laughs> Lots to reflect on. You've written a lot. <laughs> How does one become a critic? Well, my journey is a bit complex, I would say. So ever since I was a teenager, I wanted to be a writer and initially I wanted to be a novelist. I loved reading novels, fiction, spy novels, thrillers, all types of novels. What's your favourite? Of all time? Of all time. Oh God. <laughs> oh, let's do Desert Island. Spot. Let's do Desert Island. You can have just three. Just one? Just one? You can have three. three. Desert Island. I'll give you three. The Bible. Okay. Because um, I think it's a great work for literature, irrespective of your belief system. War and Peace by Tolstoy. Okay. Um, yeah, that's a very traditional old school answer. And Eat, Pray, Love. <laughs> <laughs> Never read that. Um, apparently. Well, you take it to your island. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. Fair Shake enough. things up a bit. Okay. All right. Yeah, your, third, like, your third. Your my, third. My third. My third. Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison. Okay. Nice. Yeah. Very nice. Very nice. nice. Haven't read yeah. that one. Put it's it on my list. I, I read a lot of journalism as, as a teenager as well, and, and it just seemed like such a great job being paid to to write on a regular basis. That seemed like the ideal job for me. But when I was at university, I thought seriously about going into academia because I really enjoyed my English degree when I was an undergraduate student. But during, during my master's, I, I sort of grew disillusioned with academia, largely with the academic style of writing. I found it too confining and too stifling. And so my interest and my passion for journalism reignited during the latter months of my master's degree. So after I finished my master's, I did some English tutoring for a little while, but also did some freelance writing on the side as well. But over the past year, I've just been focused on freelance writing because in the summer of last year, I actually got a book contract. So I'm currently writing a book at the moment. Exciting. <laughs> Thank you, thank you, thank you. And what's the title um, of the book? This is not America. And yeah, so um, I'm, I'm writing that book and I'm also doing some freelance writing on the side. So that's my journey in brief. If I can relate to the academic language, mm. I just never really got into it myself mm. or struggled with mm. pulling out very complicated words mm. and putting it in mm. a sentence. But I don't know, Tia's doing a PhD, so... I won't What's know. your PhD on? It's on social strain in okay. asylum-seeking refugee and host oh. communities. So really oh, okay. lighthearted stuff, very relaxed. <laughs> yeah. yeah, really, really fun. Uh, sounds, like, sounds like great fun. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm going to jump off from that into a, a romantic comedy, probably. Okay. Uh, yeah, no, it's a, it's a struggle. I remember having very hard conversations with my first supervisor, just saying, you know, I... 
I want my work to be accessible. It's mm. not accessible in this language. Mm. Yeah. And I'm saying, well, you, you know, there's a certain amount of academic rigor mm. that your work has to have mm. in order to be legitimate. And that therefore then set me off into a whole universe of legitimacy and what mm. does it mean to be legitimate and mm. why do you have to write in a particular way mm. that is only accessible to a small percentage mm. of the human population mm. for that to be legitimate. Yeah, I don't think he responded to that email. <laughs> <laughs> nice try, nice try. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, you, you, you have to do what you can sometimes. <laughs> and, and so your writing is very much on sort of the themes of anti-racism, mm. white saviorism. Mm. Why? After George Floyd was murdered in America, I found the tenor of the conversation around race in the UK very frustrating. And I think the reason why I found it frustrating is that I felt many people were reflexively reacting to the situation rather than thinking critically about it. And I also found it frustrating as well because I thought I thought much of the tone and much of the tenor of the debate and conversation and the discourse was patronizing and didn't acknowledge the fact that if you genuinely care about anti-racism, if you're genuinely committed to anti-racism, you also need to acknowledge the fact that context matters. A consequence of that fact is that not all black people are the same and not all ethnic minority people are the same. And, and they're different in so many ways, socially, economically, culturally, religiously, geographically, nationally. And I just felt that these mediating contexts were, were not acknowledged in, in the debate and the discourse. I think that's the main reason I found it frustrating. And, and I think that's the main reason I felt compelled to write on this topic. And you... You draw on quite often books that are written mm. about mm. anti-racism or mm. race, so mm. like white fragility, mm. why I no longer talk to white people mm. about, about race, white supremacy. Mm. Well, what are your thoughts on these kinds of books? It's important to acknowledge that not, not all of those books are, are the same. <laughs> if, if we're talking about white fragility, I've got a lot of issues with, with that book and with Robin D'Angelo in general. And I think the main issue that I've got with it is to go back to what, what I was saying earlier about the tone of it and the patronizing tone of it um and also the way in which she homogenizes the experiences of black people as well i find it very not not useful at all um in, in thinking critically and thinking reflexively about um the condition of black americans um i think another problem that i've got with the ways in which those books have been received in Britain is that I think that the black British population is very different in many relevant ways from the black American population. Um, and therefore the black British population should be analyzed and viewed on its own terms rather than through the prism of the black American population. Um, and I think that if you want to display or show commitment to anti-racism, or if you want to show that you genuinely care about the experiences of black people i think the fundamental thing that you need to acknowledge first is that not all black people are the same okay so lauren's accepted that proposition now what does she do next because i have read these books mm. and you know in the non-profit sector every mm. you know everyone's talking about how mm. we need to be more anti-racist and yeah. how we need to acknowledge this yeah but those books are become a little bit of a go-to, you know, so... I think another problem with those books is that they deal very much with abstractions and with generalities. They, they talk about blackness as, as though it's an essence without being specific in their focus. So what I would be interested in knowing is that what precisely do you want to do in terms of 
anti-racism what what aspects of anti-racism do you want to get involved with do you, you want to are, are you interested in improving the educational opportunities of some black communities are you interested in criminal justice are you interested in um access to housing are, are you interested to access to certain jobs and occupations? Um, I, I think one of the problems with this discourse is that there is a lack of specific focus. And I think that obscures a- any sort of progress that anybody would like to make on it. I disagree. Sure. And I think the the reason I disagree is because I think when you start sectioning things off into like thematic areas, mm. like I'm going to focus on the criminal justice mm. system. When actually for me, in my experience, I just want people to not be dicks. Mm. Okay. Can that just be its own thing? Like Lauren doesn't want to be racist. Okay. Starting point. Don't be a dick. Okay. In general. Okay. And then we can work into like your particular activism mm. areas. I'm sorry. I didn't. I don't think we explained very clearly that this is we're doing some self help with Lauren today. I think I think you've you've made you've made an, a very interesting point because with those books we were talking about, they would say that racism isn't something to do with interpersonal reaction or in, interpersonal interaction. I should say racism is not about being a good or a bad person. Racism is about structures of power. I've got issues with that argument, but yeah, if, if, if it's just about not, not being a dick to people, then that's not really limited to racism though. I think that's more of a human problem. Structures are built by people, yeah. right? And they're embedded, they're institutionalized yeah. over yeah. long periods of time. Yeah. So in my view, anti-racism, not being a Dictum. Mm. Mm. Let's just start making <laughs> up words today. Is about how you look at those things and how they yeah. might interact with other people. And that's yeah. part of my practice of not being a dick, is yeah. trying to understand how people are being affected by the things that I'm complicit in or the things mm. that I see. I think this is the kind of conversation, mm. you know, around wokeness is mm. this is a social consciousness. Mm. I'm looking, I am awake mm. now, I'm looking. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know yeah. that I necessarily feel like. I think all of that has to do with interpersonal and I think it has to do with structural. But the thing okay. in my immediate universe yeah. is my interpersonal. So I, I want to dismantle by working on these things. Yeah. If it's a structural power piece, what do I do then? Because the power structural piece does come through a lot in the nonprofit sector. Yeah. But as you say, if you take it down to the interpersonal level, then is it just a couple of tangible things? I don't know. And, and, and also um, when people talk about structures as well, I, I think that's part of the the abstraction um, that I refer to because I'm, I'm never entirely clear what they mean by structures. What, what, what the structure, uh, how does structures relate to the um, nonprofit sector? Yeah, I think we can talk about them as an institution. Okay. So the model in and of themselves, mm. we can talk about the financial structures okay. within that because the, think about them as like the businesses in their relationship to the communities that they work mm. in. There's a particularly nefarious one with international non-governmental organizations okay. when they work in relationship to national ones. Sure. And so I think there's what we see probably in those spaces are where the political mm. interacts in that mm. space. Yeah. We see the financial interacting yeah. in that space. We see institutional and organizational structures. And then you can go one layer down and mm. think about it from, you know, human resources, salaries, and you know, all of that stuff kind of interacts with those other areas. But so it's not one thing. It's not one thing. <laughs> no. Exactly. It's that, systemic. That, <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly it's you know, it's systemic. That's that's the thing, right? For me I agree with all of that. I mean I think uh, for me it's sort of like 
especially because we work in international organizations, mm. there's kind of the racist structures from being white people in the UK, mm. giving to mm. people in other countries. And sure. there's still that very colonial sure. mindset. Yeah. You're so benevolent. <laughs> <laughs> which, which, which countries do you, do you work in? Which, which Africa, which is African countries? Yeah, okay, well, ones? all, all over really. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, okay. But the international organizations work in many. We're mm. consultants. So mm. we um, kind of drop in and out wherever mm. the work is. The other side of that, so you've got that kind of international layer, but in the organizations itself it's also very much hiring white middle-class women like myself mm. who are situated in those offices in london mm. and so it's sort of the the anti-racist layer in london mm. and then its relationship to communities in other countries sure. yeah so I i'd understand. say those two with the sort of hiring white middle-class women is, is is it is it because because many people say for instance in an industry like publishing for example that one of the problems with the publishing industry is that it's um disproportionately white and middle class and, and many people say this is merely a consequence of of systematic or institutional racism but i think there's more going on with publishing i think part of the reason why it struggles to attract a more diverse group of people is partly because it's an industry that pays very badly and say for instance you come from a, an immigrant background without much wealth and you do extremely well at school and you're extremely intelligent and also vicious as well that cliche of coming from an immigrant family and being pressured to study either medicine or law or engineering i think is true and i do think that does what what people from immigrant communities choose to do so they would be more inclined to study a subject like law or medicine or engineering at university rather than humanities subjects and, and go into industries like publishing because those industries frankly don't pay well and you can only really survive within those industries if you've got intergenerational wealth i, I think so there is that element to it as well and what about people who may not come from immigrant backgrounds mm. in the more recent generations because yeah. everyone's an immigrant what what do you think is a barrier from that perspective because i really feel that pressure you know my parents were very much like doctor lawyer yeah. they yeah. came yeah. from the philippines yeah. or my mom came yeah. from the philippines yeah. doctor lawyer doctor lawyer yeah. i'm very argumentative <laughs> a bit grossed out by digging around in people's innards and so doing a podcast is horrifying for them i think yeah. but i'm curious what the barrier is from from your perspective publishing is kind of a different universe yeah yeah from us i'm guessing that the non-profit sector doesn't pay that well it depends on the organization it depends on what part of the organization you're in i okay. think there's a lot of disparities in roles there's a lot of challenges around if lauren for example were to take a post in a different country mm. she might get well she would absolutely get a different pay but she might get some extra r and r mm. rest and relaxation mm. some hardship pay some yada yada yadas so there's things like like that but in the context of london i suppose it mm. doesn't pay well mm. I, at least i think if you want to get into the sector mm. which is probably quite similar to publishing and journalism mm. there's a lot of voluntary roles mm. you do need to have that intergenerational wealth in mm. order to to get in i think mm. or you take a hardship posting and you go somewhere else i mean i don't know what it costs to live here in that context because i moved a, a to lot, london lot, yeah lot. i moved to london when i had been in this sector for yeah. nearly a decade sure. already so it was already making money <laughs> <laughs> i mean could so, i make money in a different sector more yes absolutely yeah, absolutely yeah. and that's why you do see a lot of you see a bit of that kind of brain drain mm. for people who go to different sectors and you very rarely see it go the other mm. <laughs> although yeah. when people do i find it quite you know more often than not we'll see a few well i have seen a few people People come from the private sector in like IT, 
really? moving into the nonprofit space, which for me is quite cool because I'm like, you could be making shed yeah. loads. Yeah. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. And then yeah. I know you're like, you're in it for the love. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the passion. yeah, yeah. exactly. That's when I know. Everybody yeah. else, I'm like, ah, you, you know, you're a liberal do-gooder, like, whatever. I mean, it always felt like that to me in terms of the charity sector is quite centered in London mm. or the nonprofit sector. So if you weren't based there with your parents mm. or you didn't have someone you could stay with, mm. it was very hard to get into the sector mm. because living in London was very hard mm. but then the alternate to that was to get on a plane and go mm. work somewhere else which was equally as problematic because mm. then you had a bunch of young white women flying around yeah mm. <laughs> like parasites <laughs> indeed <laughs> <laughs> there we are <laughs> and i'm still here yeah. <laughs> <I survived. laughs> but did others in mm. your wake i don't know <laughs> right so what else can lauren do to not be such a jerk well i guess there is that tension now and the reason why i say there's a tension because I think not being a jerk to me is being genuinely curious about somebody else and genuinely curious about somebody's ethnic and cultural background. But there is a risk in doing that because if Lauren, for instance, shows a great degree of curiosity and inquisitiveness. I know exactly where you're um, going with this. Somebody might accuse Lauren of microaggressions, of sort of being slightly nefarious in her curiosity. But I see it in a positive light because I myself are very curious about where people come from, like where the families come from and things like that. Like I'm genuinely curious about culture in general. Mm. Um, and I'm generally curious about cultural differences and cultural similarities as well. But I guess if a white person displays a similar level of curiosity, I feel there's always that suspicion that she should just stay in her lane, basically, and What's the private line culture. There? Exactly. That's why I think it's a problem. That's okay. why I think that tension is a problem, because I see it as a positive to be curious about other people's cultural background. I think I know exactly where the line is. I'll tell you. <laughs> okay. okay. The other day, here's what you did. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh. I think the line is when it's not heartfelt curiosity, okay. but a kind of, it's hard to put my finger on it, but it's basically like an interest that borders on, not fetishism, that's mm. not where I'm going, mm. but it's kind of like exoticizing. Yeah. It, oh, yeah. is that a Exoticizing, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. What does that mean? Like, ooh, that's really exotic. That's different. Okay. Like, okay. you know. It's not authentic, right. basically. Yeah. It's a lack of authenticity or it's a kind of creepy otherizing mm. that I don't mm. like. Because when, when oh. somebody is like where are you from <laughs> as like your first thing yeah it yeah, feels a bit yeah. weird but if it's yeah. like hey i'm so-and-so i'm yeah. also a so-and-so yeah. uh, tell me a little bit about yeah. yourself like what yeah. brings you here what's yeah. going on yeah. and then you yeah. start talking and it's like yeah. a bit more organic i have had people walk up to me touch my hair do whatever and go "Ooh, like your face where are you from let me guess and i'm like you can guess all you want but i'm pretty sure you get kicked in the mouth <laughs> like you know I think there's a line that's generically fairly clear. Mm, yeah. I do agree that there is a subtlety mm. in a kind of, as you say, microaggressions, mm. micro invalidations, yeah. micro insults. For example, I told you the other day, there was an organization who was in the news fairly yeah. recently for their relationship to a member of the royal family. Yeah. And I said, a former employee of that organization once asked me why my English was so good. That's a kind of otherizing yeah. of like, in my mind, I'm sure he thought he was just being curious. But yeah. for me, I was like, I don't yeah. even know if you realize how offensive that is because yeah, you just seem yeah. really cool about it yeah. i think curiosity is fine mm. but i think it's kind of like person to person when mm. you know it's mm. so how do people bring an awareness to this especially in the non-profit sector or publishing or whatever sector is it about bringing consciousness or greater consciousness mm. to those kinds of conversations or are people always going to be stepping into microaggressions accidentally no i think people are always going to be stepping into them 
I mean, that's why they're such a pain in the ass. They're <laughs> tiny. <laughs> yeah. It's sometimes hard to know, you know, mm. interrupting somebody. Mm. That person may feel that as a mm. microaggression. Yeah. Mm. Saying the word actually. Oh, actually, that's very good. Somebody mm. might feel mm. that as a micro insult. Well, mm. why wouldn't it be good? Mm. Like, of course it's good. I mm. created this masterpiece. Mm. Why actually? And I think it's just about us being able to kind of name these things and just say, okay, you know, when you said that, here's how it made me feel. Mm. Whereas sometimes, and I have seen this happen, I have experienced when I've called mm. these things out, people get really defensive. Oh, I didn't mean it. And nobody's perfect. And that's my favorite one. Mm. It's like, well, you know, nobody's perfect. Perfection is not mm. the goal. It's just a conversation about yeah, how yeah. that made me feel as yeah. a way for everybody to kind of learn and move forward. Having the space for open-ended conversation is absolutely crucial in all of this. I think what else is important is an old-fashioned virtue, which is tolerance. So if somebody might misspeak or say something offensive, I think it's possible to say to that person, oh, I found that offensive if you genuinely did, but I understand that fundamentally you're a good person if you do think that person is good and just made a mistake. But I, yeah, I guess it also depends on context as well. It depends on what that person said, the context of the situation as well. And I think, yeah, context is absolutely crucial in, in a lot of this, these discussions. But I'm wondering, you know, how do you bring awareness to that and say to someone mm. that offended me or I felt, mm. you know, there was a microaggression in that when you were work for an organization or a culture that maybe doesn't allow you to do that or you know maybe you find yourself as one individual one black person in a team of mm. white people how does that shape your ability to respond in that space I think it really does. Yeah. I think it really mm. does. Because even just that composition, like you, we had an interview the other day and I was mm. like, oh, it's weird. That whole panel of people interviewing us was all men. And it's not a thing that necessarily I'm like, oh, like evil men, mm. Tom, get out. Yeah. Like, that's not, that's not what I'm saying. But it's a thing to notice and to note because it's a thing to be sensitive to and attuned mm. to. And mm. so I think what it needs is the opposite. So if you are among the majority white and you've got a few people of color on your team, mm. I think it's about your awareness of where that situates that person. And I think it takes two sides of this, right? Mm. So for me, I would say, okay, bunch of white people, everybody's on their own journey. Mm. Don't be crazy with me. Mm. I won't get crazy with you. Mm. Let's just leave it there. But then on the other side, okay, I appreciate as a white person that I am the majority on this team. So I need to make sure that I'm making space and being mm. attuned to the fact that there's a dynamic at play. Sure. So if Lauren's not going to read any of those books, do all of these sound like reasonable solutions? You've already read those books. Don't, don't read the books. That's that's, there's one thing I'll say. Don't read those books. Make as many black friends as you can. I think what, what's also crucial in a lot of these discussions as well is that black people and ethnic minority people in general disagree with each other vociferously on a lot of social and cultural and even racial and ethnic issues as well. So I think that's why it's definitely mindful to not attach yourself to this idea that there's one singular black experience or one singular black point of view. The same with if you're talking about ethnic minority people in general. And I think that's why I mentioned before about the importance of curiosity because it's only by being curious about black people and ethnic minority people that you notice these cultural differences as well i think i guess there's two things for me one how challenging would that be to create mm. a singular unifying statement around it like mm. you have to for anything for mm. any campaign any yeah, anything you're trying to do you have to create monoliths or else everybody's going to be like what are we talking about <laughs> but maybe you can create like monolithic statements in principle but in practice you acknowledge 
acknowledge and understand that there are important differences. And generally, I do think that in our space, people know that people are different. Mm. I always find it hard to understand, like, what is a cultural difference and what is just a difference of us being people and mm. individuals and individual mm. minds and mm. individual thinkers. Like, if I start thinking about cultural differences, then I'm creating these categorizations and these pockets again, right? Yeah. Whereas for me, I've always felt like no frameworks, nothing. Everybody's just an individual bopping around in the universe. However, if I needed to do a campaign, I'd be like, all of these people, this whole massive group of people mm. having a hard time, this whole massive group of people is having a great time, whatever. Mm. I'd cluster people together because I'm yeah. trying to yeah. hit land a message. I am in favor of people reading those books as a starting place to understand a conversation okay. because I think it's too complicated for our poor, white, sad friends <laughs> to start a journey unaided yeah. because the other argument would be if Lauren was like cool I'm gonna go make some brown friends I'd be like get back in the van right now because that's psychotic like yeah. go make friends authentically find people common interests I appreciate the fact that we have these dynamics where we haven't gotten rid of our mm. sort of ancestral tribal vibes yeah. where we yeah. look for commonalities in people things we can see immediately mm. so that we know you and I probably have something that we can agree on. I can mm. tell from over here because mm. I can see something about you that's mm. similar to me. So mm. that's at least one starting place. But if you just rocked up to like a group of black people and you're like, let's be friends. Yeah. I'd laugh. Let's do it. Let's do it and see what happens. Well, experiment. <laughs> Anthropological experiment. Go, go, go. Yeah. I'm trying to collect one of each. I'm going to take you to the van. Exactly. Yeah. Come to the van. And then I'll be yeah. sitting in the van like, it's okay. Yeah. I'm going to find myself in uh, prison or something. Very soon. There's a TikTok in here, I think, probably. Yeah, probably. I think what I'm getting from what you're saying is that it's a more complicated conversation mm. than you feel like the current mm. discourse is like. Yeah. And I agree with you on that. I agree we should be having more complex conversations, mm. but I'm also not sure people know how to have those conversations. And mm. so what's the starting point for them? Because even me, I have people in my life who, when Black Lives Matter movement mm. was really taking mm. off, their kind of social consciousness was mm. kind of coming to life. Mm. I was becoming more overt in my activism. Mm. I was kind of creating these lines for mm. people of mm. like, you need to start thinking about this in a more mm. complex way. And that for me was this moment of people then trying to learn. Because I said, I'm not going to teach you. You figure yeah. it out yourself. Yeah. And I know that there were people in my life who went out and read these books mm. to try and understand. So in the absence of that, I worried. Because I one, I didn't feel it was my job to explain. So the kind of get yourself some black friends. <laughs> I don't know that I would want that because yeah. it's not my job to tell you. Yeah. You figure it out. This is your yeah. journey. You walk your own walk. Two, at that time, I didn't have the vocabulary. I didn't have the feeling. I didn't have a lot of things that I have now that mm. would have helped me to have that conversation more productively. Mm. Now, when we're having conversations about things, I feel much more confident in what I'm saying and mm. how I think and what I feel to be able to communicate complexity and nuance. Then I would have been like, don't be an asshole. I mean, that's generally my starting point with everything. Like yeah. People are like, oh, cool. How do we do our programming better? Like, what's our governance structure look like? Don't be an asshole. Start there. <laughs> so I think that I would say that there's probably a place in the world for books like that as a starting point just yeah. to take the pressure off of me. Because mm. yeah. <laughs> that's a lot of work trying to like help people on their journey. 
But I guess this, the problem is that many white people just read those books and do nothing else. And that's the impression that I've been getting is, is that many white people just say, oh, I've read Robin DiAngelo. I've read Ibram Kendi. That's my work done. Now I can go back to my life. Now, now I know what it's like to be a black person. <laughs> and I think that's definitely a problem because those books um, very often are not used as a way to genuinely improve your knowledge of black people, black communities. And I think for many people, those books act as the end of the conversation rather than the start of it. That's my impression. Mm. So how could that conversation be continued? I, I think that conversation can be continued by people reading, actually reading less polemical books. So reading more history books about black people around the world because that's genuine knowledge. That's not arguments which you can sort of agree or disagree with. That's genuine knowledge. And I think knowledge is crucial if you want to cultivate a more sophisticated understanding of. I agree with the, having a better understanding mm. of people of different cultures. Mm. One, I also feel like that'd take you a thousand years to get through if you wanted to learn about all, <laughs> all, no, all the ethnic not, minorities. You, you, don't, you don't need to learn up. If, 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 just, just some, some, some is good enough. Wait, pick your favorites. Yeah. Pick your favorite black people, yeah. Lauren. Got, is, am I one? I mean, now. <laughs> so now I know I have a more sophisticated mm. understanding of mm. different types of people. Mm. But now what do I do with that knowledge? Mm. Or how does that help me to translate mm. that into understanding? Mm. So, for example, Lauren's got a, you know, background in anthropology. Do you? Kind of. What parts of anthropology? Well, it's more um, ethnography. Uh, so, ethnography from a language perspective okay. and observing groups of people in terms of how they interact with each other in Europe, but also in East Africa. Okay. Um, so she's always staring at me. This well, is why. Yeah. And I, watching I, me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love ethnography because it, it kind of takes you out of framework, right? Mm. It's observation. Mm. It's observing how people interact. Did you, you, did you say East Africa? Yeah. That's very interesting because Swahili is, is like the sort of lingua franca in East Africa, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. That connects people from not just different ethnic groups, but also different countries as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, was it Tanzania, Kenya, yeah. South Sudan, Uganda yeah. as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Swahili covers all of them. Yeah. yeah. So my point, you observe people, you have an understanding of groups of people, mm. how they operate. Does that help you to understand your place, how you interact with that? No, or is it? I don't think so. Not unless it's like self-ethnography or auto-ethnography, mm. where you do observe your own interactions and spaces. Mm. There, there is that does exist. Can you do more of that, please? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it takes such a deep level of consciousness, though, to yeah. go into a space and be like, oh, I did that. How did I respond there? You mm. know, you go to a checkout. You don't really care how you interact mm. with that checkout person. Mm. But to really think deeply about it for me you'd have to be that person with a notepad mm. <laughs> writing everything down wherever you go mm. but it relies on your own ability to have that self-awareness mm. there is skill in that is that maybe what we want self-awareness yeah well self-awareness coupled with social consciousness because yeah. i know a lot of people who are very self-aware yeah. and very happy to be dicks <laughs> <laughs> And what I want, maybe that's what I want. Yeah, Self-awareness, yeah, social, consciousness. social consciousness together. Yeah. Because social consciousness relies on the fact that you care about how other people are feeling and what mm. their experiences are in the absence of that being your own experience. Mm. So maybe those two. That's what I want. Can you do some of that, please? I'm just kidding. You're yeah, okay. no, I'm just thinking, like, how does that work? I mean, what do you think? 
Well, I guess you can't be perfect. That's one of my other important messages that I like to impart in my articles and whatever I write is that nobody can be perfect. And I think if we all start by acknowledging that we can have more constructive conversations, because I think one issue is that this pursuit of perfection, this pursuit of trying to do everything perfectly is a problem because it means that you're basically dooming yourself to failure. And that generates a great degree of resentment, I think, and a great degree of bitterness, not just on your part, but also on the part of the people that you are trying to help in some way as well. So if we start with that that affirmation that we can't be perfect, we can have more constructive conversations about what we can actually do that can actually work within the limits of what we actually have. I completely agree that people cannot be perfect. I'm the exception, but (laughs) I completely agree. The thing that worries me about that is Mm. that I often hear that being used as an, as a reason to Mm. not do anything or as a way to excuse bad behavior. Because, you know, in the example I gave before where I've said, okay, yeah, you know, you did an icky thing. Yeah. That was a, you did a racism. Mm. Stop it. And it's, oh, well, you know, nobody's perfect. Perfection for me is not the point. Mm. I think it gets used as this concept. Like, I haven't heard any protests for perfection. Mm. I just think it gets used too much as Mm. like a get out of jail Mm. free card. Mm. Mm. And that's the worry that I have with that being our kind of affirmation Mm. is that then people will say, well, well, you know, Tom, Lauren and Tia said nobody's perfect. So, (laughs) right. But but actually it's much more complicated than that, right? Because that's perfection is not what anybody's calling for. Mm. People are calling to be treated fairly Mm. and equally and Mm. be respected. And, Mm. you know, my research is around social strain. And one of the biggest strains that came out of my research is people feeling humiliated Mm. and that they weren't respected. Mm. And so all of the things when you see like you can be living in an economically deprived area Mm. you can not have secure housing all of these other kind of big things Mm. can be absent from your life Mm. but certainly in my research one of the things that was the biggest was across different racial groups and ethnic Mm. minority groups the biggest thing were those interpersonal things was about Mm. respect and Mm. the biggest thing that really yeah the thing that hacked people off the most was being humiliated Mm. and that was Mm. associated with very strong feelings of anger and frustration Mm. was just this Mm. feeling of humiliation and Mm. what that meant and it wasn't being described in a structural piece it Mm. was being described in a human Mm. piece because i agree that systems can be humiliating but are you saying when white people say oh i'm not perfect there's a humiliation behind that I've moved on from that point. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how I got there, but I think that don't microaggress at me. I think when people say I'm not perfect, it gets used as a tool for them to not do. So similarly Mm. to what you were saying before, although I'm not necessarily sure. Well, I don't know. I don't know if people read me and white supremacy and then just step away from their work. Lauren's more the incrementalist. I will say here, you bought it, you got your Kindle edition, whatever you did. But some people don't even read it. They buy it, but they don't read it. But that's probably true of a lot of books. I don't think that's particular to those books. I think that there's probably something about the fact that at least you've started it. (laughs) So the interest for me is, Mm. okay, like you're interested. You Mm. may not be ready to like walk Mm. this long journey, Mm. fine. But I think that starting point I'm okay with. Obviously, I'm not okay with people reading a book and thinking that's the end of the thought. Mm. But Mm. I like the idea that they're thinking enough to take that first step like Mm. getting people to take action is hard so taking Mm. that first step for me is meaningful but similar to this idea of okay well you read this book and then you don't do anything about it this idea of like oh i'm not perfect and then you just kind of like Mm. step away from that conversation Mm. is the thing Mm. that worries me sometimes Mm. is like say oh i'm not perfect but then try to do something different or Mm. be better 
But what about the Leila Saeed book? It's like a journal, yeah, isn't it? And, yeah, and yes. she asks you to write and answer questions. Yeah. And then there's even a bit where she encourages you to create circles. Like, I don't know if it's circles of white people or what the, yeah, the yeah. premise is behind yeah. Traditionally, that. white people gathering together in circles is not been good. So Lauren, if you were thinking about it, don't gather any white people in any configuration wearing white. Okay. <laughs> I mean, at least that book to some extent encourages mm. you to take it further, but not mm. necessarily in a way that brings in black people into that conversation is it just an echo chamber that you're creating by having just white people yeah i think there is definitely a risk in that and i think that's another reason why i'm not very keen at all on those books um, to put it mildly <laughs> but doesn't it just sound like a horrible book club though i wouldn't join that book yeah, club. Yeah, so exactly. like, come and join this circle i'd be like no i'm busy i'm busy that day yeah yeah exactly and, and i think another problem is that the reason they would say that that they don't want to invite black people to those circles is that they don't want black people to sort of act as a sort of savior kind person but the problem with that is that you inevitably put that pressure on any black person that you meet after you've spent so long interacting with other white people and, and trying to make sense of the racism that courses through your body is that whenever you see a black person that that black person would always assume an almost supernatural or metaphysical status than they would otherwise in a normal circumstance and i think personally m most black people would like to would like to be treated in a, in a normal fashion rather than in a sort of and it goes back to what we we're saying very very early on rather than being treated in a sort of fetishistic or or in an exoticizing manner and i think there is a risk in doing that with if you just congregate around fellow white people and discuss race in in such a way I've never been to one of these white book clubs. <laughs> Long may that continue. Just because I'm trying to live a hard life. A stress-free life. Yeah, yeah. I'm a queer woman of color. I got my own problems. I am not trying to help you fix yours. But I do think that there's probably something useful about creating these sort of clusters of conversations. There's effectively, like in our field, we call them like communities of practice. Okay. Which are basically people who are rallied around or thinking and learning around a particular thing or addressing the same problem, but use Using the knowledge within the group mm. or using each other to kind of bounce off. Mm. There's loads of different versions of these, but in our space, a very common one is a community of practice, mm. which is kind of what these sound like or could be. Mm. I don't know to what extent there's like a mandate around like excluding people of color, but I think mm. that if you're reading these books, you're probably trying to fill the space of these black and brown voices that would help you just kind of like by virtue of that relationship mm. understand and check you. So maybe they just accidentally end up being like really white lady book clubs because you don't have any brown friends. But maybe that's okay. Like maybe brown people don't want to be friends with you. Or maybe you live in an area that doesn't really Yeah, and yeah, and there, it would be a problem if you started to try and import them. <laughs> we, yeah, yeah, exactly. There's a long history of people importing brown people and it's not a good one. <laughs> yeah, by virtue of where I've lived, I think, and who's been in an organization, I've definitely ended up in white people book clubs. Mm. <laughs> what books were you reading? Eat, Pray, Love. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Invisible Women. You see that one on the book shelf oh, there yeah. oh. and purpose of power and um, so those two definitely are they good invisible women yeah it looks at kind of gendered data mm. and the exclusion of data about women in lots of different mm. fields like mm. medical fields mm. 
that's a good one. Purpose of Power is about Black Lives Matter movement and okay. how it started. So yeah. and movement building generally. And yeah, yeah. It is that they're good. both really good books. Not white self help white books. So <laughs> well, because these are my books. I don't need that. <laughs> <laughs> True. This is Tia's bookshelf that we're all looking at right now. <laughs> right. Yeah. A lot of researchy books, and then fiction as well. Yeah, a little bit in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah I like to dabble, but I like to keep my fiction books closer to that end. Okay. These nice. are my show books. <laughs> So, what have we worked out for you, Lauren? First off, don't be a dick. Don't be a dick. Be more self-aware and socially mm. conscious Yeah. at the same time, if possible. Yes, ideally. Consider whether you really need to start a white circle book club or a white people's book club. Mm. Yeah. That AJ. might not be the way to go. Yeah. Broaden my understanding of black people outside of popular books like White Fragility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're the three takeaways I've got in my head. Okay. Yeah. Maintain your curiosity. Maintain yeah. my curiosity. Definitely. Yeah. Take out the fetishism. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Tom, anything else Lauren's left out? Uh, <laughs> this is your chance. This is my chance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The curiosity and the knowledge things, that are, I think those, those are the most important things. Yeah, and just treat black people as normal. Okay. <laughs> 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 Not me, actually. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, you said, yeah, yeah, you said yeah, superhero, yeah, and yeah, I was like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I didn't know that was an option. <laughs> you, you found a new role for yes, yourself. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I want to ask you about your recent article. Please do. The one that you, it was about people talking about race calmly. Yes. So it's kind of very yes. much picking up on yes. this conversation. Yes. But you also bring entertainment into it. Which aspects? Really? You talk about like in the cultural wars, how people want to actually just be entertained. Oh, yeah, yeah, well. yeah, yeah. yeah. And you mentioned yeah. Piers Morgan. Yeah. And I'm just yeah. curious your angle on that. Lauren's got a battle with Piers Morgan. <laughs> yeah, I don't, do you? I don't like it. A battle him. with Piers Morgan <laughs> and a battle with Stephen Bartlett. <laughs> just really curious about your angle on that. <laughs> yeah, Stephen Bartlett is very annoying. Yeah. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> and a fraud as well, but let's not talk. After we turn the <laughs> So I do think many people do treat a lot of the conversations around race and culture and other cultural war issues as a form of entertainment. I used to, and I still do sometimes to an extent, because it is kind of entertaining seeing those five minute clips between Pierce Morgan and somebody else that's just on the other side of Pierce ideologically going at it. It is irrespective of whether you agree or disagree with either or none of them. It can be quite funny, I think. Mm. But I think the interesting thing is that most people do have more nuanced and more calmer conversations around these subjects mm. than is reflected in the media. That's why I do think that many people are interested in people like Piers Morgan and, and so forth. But in reality, their views are more calmer and more mm. nuanced and more complex than these conversations imply. Yeah. Well, I mean, it would be boring as hell to watch <laughs> three people having a very reasonable conversation yeah, yeah, about yeah, race yeah, and racism. True, I don't know how yeah. entertaining that is. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. We're going we're gonna to have to fight her in a minute. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do think there is that assumption that the way Piers Morgan talks about race and right-wing issues mm, mm. is a reflection of everyone else that, that know, believes in, in him yeah, yeah, or believes what he's saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah I do agree choice, with that. Yeah. But on the other hand, I also agree that Piers Morgan and Stephen Bartlett is kind of entertaining. <laughs> yeah, that's why people listen to them and watch them and mm, yeah. re- read their books as well. It's because there is that Do we need to be more controversial? Ooh, maybe. Okay. <laughs> okay, on that note. Yeah, <laughs> controversy attracts light. But I don't know, controversy and race doesn't seem like Lauren, we drop the N-word right now. <laughs> drop the N-word right now. <laughs> no. 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 <laughs> Come on. We need clickbait. <laughs> no. <laughs> 
Yeah, on that note. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Tom, I'll invite you back once I've got me out. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you so much for thank being here you. for this conversation. I've had a lot of fun. Yeah, me too. Thank it's you. been really interesting. Thank, thank you. you. Right. I'm Dia. I'm Lauren. And I'm Tom. And this has been the Journey to Transformation. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Journey to Transformation. Leave us a five-star rating and a written review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Journey to Transformation is written and edited by us, Tia Rogers and Lauren Burrows. Our music comes from Praz Canal.